We're in Luke chapter 16 this morning, and that phrase, the moral of the story is that we matter to God, is actually really obvious in this parable, this story that Jesus shares in the context of some religious leaders and people who have created a system by which to judge somebody's spirituality. And so the assumption of this system is that if you're wealthy, if you're powerful, if you are meticulous and disciplined about all spiritual matters, then surely you're blessed of God. And the reverse is true as well. That if you are poor, if you are sick, if you are in need of healing, if, if the difficulties of this life have seemed overwhelming, then surely you're unspiritual. Surely God doesn't like you and doesn't bless you. The great reversal of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament is that everything that we assume is right is typically wrong. And everything that we assume is wrong is potentially and typically right by the transforming work of God's grace and his love for us because we do matter. And so I'll tell you, if you're at Luke chapter 16, you're going to move on down to verse 19. And when you get to that story, you're going to look at it, you're going to read it. If you're familiar with it, you're potentially going to think, wow, this is kind of tough on a Sunday morning because this is probably the most horrific difficult parable that Jesus ever tells. It's more about hell than it is about heaven. But ironically, and I want you to stick with me on this and kind of track on this, ironically, it's because Jesus wants us to be with him in heaven. He understands the dichotomy of these two places in scripture, hell, which is a place after life, For those who do not know him, do not have faith in him, do not recognize him as God, and heaven is a place which is actually God's home in all of its beauty and its splendor, and it's a place for those who do know him. And Jesus makes it clear throughout the scriptures, and particularly in his death and resurrection, that his desire is for everyone to end up in his home forever. But the reality is, and Jesus is clear about this throughout scripture, he actually many times addresses the issues of hell, an eternal place of judgment, even more than he talks about heaven, because he doesn't want that to be where we spend forever. He knows and he understands, and as God who has become man and is living with us, he recognizes that we don't see what he knows is the reality. That we don't die and have peace. We don't die and cease to exist. We die and continue to exist and continue to live. But our faith, our relationship with God will determine what that eternal living looks like. And this is a graphic, as I said, horrific passage of scripture because it shows clearly how you don't want, say all the jokes you want, make all the comments about how fun it would be, party forever and all that kind of stuff, the many of us who blew off hell before we became followers of Christ, before we became Christians, tend to want to do to pretend that it's somehow okay. Jesus is perfectly clear in this story that there is nothing okay 
about living forever separated from God. But that there is everything beyond okay and a blessing beyond description. I don't even think we have the terms to describe it about living forever with him and in his presence. And so this story is tough. It's difficult. We tend to want to ignore that. Even as Christians, even as people who regularly study the Bible, we tend to not want to have to deal with these realities. But Jesus makes it clear these are realities and these are realities we need to consider and think through if we want to live forever. If we want something beyond the grave to be meaningful. So Luke chapter 16, we're just gonna dive in. We're gonna start in verse 19. I'm gonna take the story in segments. Um, For one thing, it's a little overwhelming if you read the whole thing. But we're going to look at what's happening in this story and understand principles and practicality about making a decision that guarantees that we spend eternity in heaven. And that decision is the simplest decision anybody's ever going to make. Ironically, it is also the most life-changing decision anyone's ever going to make, and that is the decision to believe in Jesus for who he is, to know him, have his forgiveness, and have his guarantee for eternity. Not our guarantee for eternity, his guarantee. My passage into heaven, my passage into God's house is guaranteed not because of what I've done, but absolutely because of everything Jesus has done. And I've accepted that as the truth and the guidance for my life. And so I have full confidence that's my destination. And a full sense of appreciation that hell is not my destination. And yet at the same time, as this story drives home a sense of urgency, I want to make sure everybody I know has the guarantee of an eternity with God in his house because we've accepted and trusted Christ and we have not ignored and depended upon our own works, our own efforts, our own prosperity, our own conjuring of blessings to somehow guarantee that we'll spend eternity in heaven instead of hell. One scholar about this passage of scripture made the interesting observation that says that this passage of scripture typifies and and shows that there are a lot of people in hell that never expected to be there. What a sad destination to have had the opportunity to make the decision that would guarantee an eternal destiny in God's presence and God's blessing as opposed to an eternity separated from him and the torment and destruction of that place forever. And all you had to do was make a decision. God had taken care of everything. All you had to do was make the decision. And you either failed to make the decision or you made the decision, but you failed to trust in God and you decided to trust in your own methods and means which will lead to destruction. So I think that's probably true, that hell is filled full of people who never expected to get there. The story begins, and we see the characters in verse 19. There was a rich man. This is a unique parable, a unique story of Jesus in that it is the only story that Jesus tells. It's a fictitious story with absolute true principles, but this is the only story Jesus tells in which we have proper names, which makes it feel 
more historical than it is. But I think that also is what Jesus is hoping to do. Make it very real, make it very applicable so that we make a decision. There was a rich man. We don't have his names. He's commonly called Dives out of the Latin word for rich, the adjective for rich. This rich man would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. That's the first character. But in verse 20, a poor man named Lazarus, which is the Greek word for Eleazar, which that word means God is my help. And so the comparison here in the characters, the, the assumption that takes place here is even in naming them, Jesus makes it clear. The distinction between these two is self-sufficiency and God-sufficiency. The rich man has decided to trust in all of his wealth, all of his power, all of his stature. The other man, Lazarus, whose name we actually have, has nothing to trust in. And so he puts all of his trust, all of his faith in God. Lazarus, this poor man, is covered with sores. He is lying at the rich man's gate. And he longs, in verse 21, to fill himself with what falls from the rich man's table. But instead, the dogs would come, presumably to eat the scraps from the table, and in the process would simply lick his sores. I warned you, this is a horrific Story. This is images you don't want stuck in your head. But they're images that help compel us to grasping that truth that we matter to God and God wants us in relationship with him. The conditions of their present reality, these characters, the assumptions about their life are just as bad as it can possibly get. One seems to have everything you would ever want the things that many of us long for, desire for, even you can go as far as to be greedy for or lustful for, they have, he has everything. But in the end, we'll end up with nothing. The other has absolutely nothing. His condition is worse than our worst nightmare. And yet, he will end up with everything. So from the beginning, there's a contrast between the decision-making and the life that follows these two individuals. The great reckoning, so to speak, the equalizing of this moment happens in verse 22. Because you have death and you have the consequences of death. One day the poor man died in verse 22 and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Let me just explain for just a real quick moment on that. Abraham's side is a, it, 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 is, it is a phrase to describe the perfect place of bliss. It is the perfect, particularly in the Jewish mind, which is the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, it is the idea of absolute paradise. It, it pulls off of that concept on the cross as Jesus dying and as a thief looks at him and says, Lord, I just want you to remember me. Clearly, I've sinned. I've done things wrong. I deserve this death, he said to the other one being executed. But to Jesus, he simply says, remember me. And Jesus makes the promise. Today, today you'll be with me in paradise because of the decision you've made. You'll be with me in paradise. This is that description and understanding of that paradise tying together all the heritage of the Jews back to Abraham, tying to back, back all the faith that was created in that journey and in that, in that life. It is a reminder to everything they would look forward to and anticipate. 
The poor man dies. He's carried away by angels, literally into Abraham's presence, into God's presence, and is absolutely enjoying all the benefits of what we call heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. Services were held, obituaries were written, testimonies were given, but he finds himself in a completely different situation. Now being in torment in Hades, that word for hell, he looks up and he sees Abraham a long way off with Lazarus by his side. This is to me, one of the more painful aspects and difficult aspects of this passage of scripture. Imagine being in this place separated from God so there is no possibility of any type of blessing or benefit or comfort or grace. The moment for grace, the moment for mercy has passed and yet he can see. And the man he walked past every day and ignored is in heaven, in God's presence, in Abraham's presence. He's a part of that great chorus that we see in the book of Revelation from every tongue, every tribe, every nation gathered together singing and worshiping and enjoying heaven from his torment, he can see it. These are the consequences. Death levels the playing field and death ushers us out of this life into another life where there's no guarantee for peace and there's no guarantee for solace or comfort. It's not a a cease to exist. That would possibly be more merciful. It is a destination. Death has consequences and we end up and there's only two options for those consequences. You are either in hell, separated from God, in torment, as this passage of scripture describes it, or you're in heaven, in God's presence, And in his presence, all the benefit beyond imagination and comprehension of his love and his care. So we find these two individuals living their lives, their lives appearing reflective of a spiritual condition that was false. And now we find them in eternity and the spiritual condition is perfectly clear. All the wealth, all the property, all the status, all the things that mattered so much here don't help the tiniest little bit there. And everything you didn't have here won't matter because everything you have there exceeds our wildest imagination. There is death. We will all face it. And there are consequences to how we enter into and experience that. And that comprehension's what begins to unfold. The rich man, if you want to call him by the Latin name that he's been given throughout history, is Dives. Dives looks into heaven, he sees it, and then he describes his set of circumstances in verse 24. Father Abraham, he calls out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, recognizing that Dives, the rich man, had a heritage in the flesh, he had the descendancy from Abraham, but not by faith, since, and hence the separation. Son, Abraham said, remember that during during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. 
Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. The imagery Jesus uses in this story is is amazing and challenging and actually answers many of the questions I hear from many people, Christians and non-Christians, about eternity. There are things that are real in this moment. There is, as your comprehension, as, as Lazarus's comprehension of his blessing and as the rich man's, as Divey's comprehension of his curse, the decisions become clear, the needs become clear, and the circumstances become clear, and they're real. All he wants, he wants comfort to the point that if even Lazarus could take one tip of his finger, touch it to the water, and that one drop, he would give anything for it. But that doesn't happen because it's been separated. Destiny is settled at this point. I don't know how many people well, we do this every day, not just on eternal matters. We do it every day. We assume we can make a decision at another point in time. How, how many times do we do that? You have to make a decision about a bill that comes in, and maybe it's a difficult decision, and you don't want to deal with it in the moment, so you just simply say, okay, I'll, I'll wait on it, because they just don't want to face it today. Hundreds, thousands, who, who knows how many people made that decision this morning? What am I going to do with my Sunday? What's going to take place? Maybe there's some inclination, maybe from past, maybe from influence of parents that said, maybe, you know, maybe I should go to church today. Maybe I benefit something by going to church. And, and you have that decision. But then the more you think about it, I, I know this is true. Because I laid on my bed this morning, exhausted from the game last night. <laughs> I didn't play it, but... My heartbeat and respiration would indicate it that I was there sympathetically um, and empathetically, absolutely. And I said, maybe we don't go to church today. My wife didn't think that was the best idea. She had to remind me, you're the pastor. You, you need to go to church today. Couldn't put off the decision, but we do that. And here we find the rich man, Divey's, that's what he's done his whole life. He just put it off. Maybe he thought about it at times. He did, but, and just thought, I'll, I'll deal with this later. Well, later has come for him. The consequences are there. Death has happened. And now he's in this situation and the realities are there and they're overwhelming, but they're unchangeable at this point. You don't get to wait till later. It's a decision you have to make while you have the opportunity. You can't procrastinate indefinitely. He couldn't wait. He couldn't be satisfied with everything because the heart of the issue, the soul of the issue had never been dealt with. Now the destinies are settled. Interestingly enough, the ability to recognize, comprehend is obvious in this passage of scripture. Recognition continues on. He sees the circumstances. He understands the circumstances. He's comprehending the circumstances. It's not like he got some kind of free pass and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. Um, we'll try to minimize it and make it as comfortable as possible. This isn't a decision between 
going economy class and business class or first class. This decision is about spending forever separated from God. And the discomfort isn't momentary. It is eternal. It is forever. And he understands this and he recognizes this. Memory exists in heaven. I get asked this a lot. Well, I remember my husband. Well, I I remember my wife. Well, I remember my children. Well, my children remember me. According to Jesus, you can't build a whole doctrine on a parable because it's fictitious in nature, but Jesus has been there. Jesus has been in heaven and hell. He knows both situations and he's aware of it. And so the very nature of the story pulls from those truths. And memory exists. Abraham calls to Dives and says, remember during your life. I don't know about you, but I do hope, and I do think there are some indications that forgiveness potentially allows us to forget some things. But we're not forgetting everything. That's not a complete erasure of all that has been. It continues with us. Personality survives into eternity. These men are carrying themselves the same way they did in life. And it's following with them. Identity continues. This is one I get asked a lot. Will Will I know people in heaven? Some people ask me because they really want to know somebody. They're planning on meeting up with family or they're planning on meeting up with friends or they're planning on meeting up with some influencer and they want to know them. Sometimes I think we kind of hope that maybe we don't know them. Maybe our relationship wasn't that good on earth and somehow it'll be okay. But what we know is the identity carries on. The identity of a believer carries into eternity. So you decide today who you are in Christ and what your identity is and you secure it in the person of Jesus. It goes with us into eternity. They're not only simply recognized, but their identity is there. And and they know who they are. They're still Lazarus and they are still the rich men. Abraham is still Abraham. My favorite passage of scripture addressing this issue is what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes with three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and he goes up to the top of a mountain and there he's going to spend some time with them. What they don't know is the party has an extended invitation to some other individuals who have long since passed away. And so as they're up there, Jesus is transfigured. That's why it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes on his heavenly glory, his heavenly raiment. And Elijah shows up and Moses shows up. And the first thing Peter does is recognize them and say, look, this is cool. Let me set up some tents Let's stay here a while. Now, you might think you would recognize Moses because you did Experiencing God by Blackaby and you saw the painting on the cover of the workbook. Peter didn't do Experiencing God by Blackaby and yet he recognizes him. We'll know who one another are. Have you ever stopped to think for just a minute that a description of heaven includes people from every tongue, every language, every tribe, every nation. God is okay with color. He created it. And he is okay if that color happens to be who we are and our pigmentation. And he will glorify it in the beauty of eternity. Yes, we'll be known. We'll be recognized. That's what's worth looking forward to. 
That's what's anticipating being in heaven. For the rich man, not so much because he recognizes it. He recognizes Abraham, he recognizes Lazarus and his suffering is exponentially increased realizing he has no comfort. There is no mercy available. He comes to that horrific conclusion in verse 27 when you have this characterization of the opportunities and the limits of those opportunities. Father, again, talking to Abraham, then I beg you to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house because I have five brothers. Send Lazarus to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. His chance is gone. He realizes that. This is the saddest point in this story. There is no hope for Dives. None. It's set and he's stuck with this forever. And so out of the midst of that hope, the only thing left almost of his humanity is a desire that somebody would go tell his brothers so they don't end up in the same place because they're living their life the same way and they're headed to the same destination. Please stop that. And Abraham points out, no, they've got everything they need. They're continuing to ignore it. Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses, they have the prophets. They should listen to them. This is just terrible. This is horrific. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what's happening to to Dives at this point is he is in heaven and he's finding out, guess what? The Bible was true. And all those times I didn't bother to read it and all the times I didn't listen to any of those teachers, every time I blew it off as myth, however any one of us wants to rationalize about the significance and the sufficiency of scripture in hell, Dives recognizes it was all true. And now it's too late. And his one request to send somebody to go warn his brothers isn't going to carry any weight because Abraham says they have the same testimony you have. They have the same information you had. You chose to ignore it. They will choose to ignore it. It doesn't make a difference. You have everything you need to be able to make this decision. One of you chose to make a decision to ignore and to push aside and to not believe. The other made the decision to accept and to listen and to believe. And the non-believing one is in hell and the believing one is in heaven. It's almost ironic. Jesus knows what's going to happen because he's the son of God. And he concludes his story with The rich man saying, no, please, Father Abraham, in verse 30, if someone from the dead goes, then they'll repent, as if they didn't have enough chances and opportunities. Abraham says, no. Now, if they didn't listen to Moses, and if they didn't listen to the prophets, if they didn't listen to the testimony of truth in Scripture, if they didn't listen to that, they won't be persuaded. And I just cringe on this part of the story. Even if someone raises from the dead. Because you and I live post-resurrection. Someone did raise from the dead. His name is Jesus. And they still don't listen. 
But I can't make the decision for them. I can't make the decision for you. We have to make the decision ourselves. Me, I have full confidence, not in myself, but in God. That God loved this world, more specifically me, enough that I would, if I would believe in him, he would give me eternity with him. We matter to him. We matter to Jesus. We matter and he wants us to know him, not just for today, but he wants us to know him for all eternity. If I am not here next Sunday and you find that my wife has buried me at the ranch and I've been put up there permanently, know this, I am one happy and content man because I trusted Jesus. But I have friends and I know people that over and over and over again continue to reject. And like this rich man, they are going to be very surprised to hear what are, in my opinion, the worst words in all of Scripture. When Jesus looks at them in eternity and says, I never knew you. God will not be to blame on that day. You will. You've got to make the decision. There is no reason to procrastinate on this one. The consequences are too severe in both directions.